worship of the Lord through the reading of Scripture. And we want to invite you to have a seat. This is a longer Scripture reading passage. You know, oftentimes we remain standing out of respect for God's Word. But I want to encourage us to allow that to be the posture of our hearts as we hear the Word. That our hearts are elevated as we listen to God's Word. So our Scripture reading this morning is Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to meet me there. Otherwise, it will also be projected on the screen behind me and the various monitors throughout the building. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man... From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on earth. Let's stand together once again. Beginning there through, through 23 and then chapter 9, we'll be looking at today as we continue our series, Origins. A lot of times we sing songs here on Sunday morning or whenever and we don't pay a whole lot of attention. I, I remember, and I was reminded of the song, Come, the Fount of Blessing. I remember singing it as a child growing up in church. I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to the words. But as I looked at it, I think it was yesterday, it really hit. Come, the Fount of Every Blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy grace, streams of mercy, never ceasing. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor 
daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. How I'll sing of thy sovereign grace. If you noticed over and over, this hymn talks about God's grace and his mercy. But it also talks about our hearts and how we're prone to wander. We're prone to leave the God we love. If we're honest, we acknowledge that our hearts are desperately wicked except for the Spirit of God who lives in us as believers. We're prone to wander from God, from the God that we love, from the God who drew us to himself. We need to remember that our walk with God in the past does not guarantee our walk with God now or in the future. I think sometimes we, we want to think that we build up an immunity to sin as we mature. But neither age nor maturity provide protection against temptation. We must be vigilant to walk with God. In the past two weeks, we've, we've seen that downward spiral of man after creation. After the fall, Adam blames Eve. Cain kills his brother, and Lamech kills a boy and brags about it, and then he commits bigamy by taking a second wife. In Genesis 6, 5, we read that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's a hard truth for us to accept that God sees our hearts and except for his grace in our lives that our hearts are prone toward evil only. In all this we see in chapter 6 verse 8 we see God's grace. We see God's grace. But Noah found favor. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it says that Noah was Righteous and blameless. Last week, as Pastor Kerry preached, we saw the results of God's judgment on mankind through the flood. We saw that all living things on earth died. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, and of course man. At the end of the flood, in chapter 8, verse 20, we see... A new commitment to man after the flood by God. In the passage today, we see the first thing that Noah did after getting off the ark was to build an altar. Eight, chapter 8, verse 20. He took some of every clean animal and the birds and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And while the earth remains, 
seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. We see immediately in these verses that the human heart didn't change in the ark. And so those who remained afterwards had that same heart, he just says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. But again, we see God's grace. Verses 8, 20 through 22 are a prelude to a covenant that God gives to Noah. We'll see in chapter 9. We see in various places that God had a plan that this flood wasn't a surprise uh, event that he had to do. Back in Ephesians 1, chapter we see his plan. He says he chose us before the foundation of the world. Second Timothy 1.9 says that God saved us and called us before the ages began. So we need to remember that after God created man and man fell into sin, God wasn't caught off guard. He wasn't shocked at man's wickedness because we see from before the foundation of the universe, he had a plan. He had a plan. He would be working it through the ages. Chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we see a new set of rules for man to follow. Verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and told them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, all of the animals of the earth, all the birds of the sky, all the small animals that scurry along the ground and all the fish in the sea will look on you with fear and terror. I've placed them in your power. I've given them to you for food, just as I have given you grain and vegetables. But you must never eat any meat that is still has the lifeblood in it. I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. If anyone takes a human life, that person's life will also be taken by human hands. For God made human beings in his image. And now be fruitful and multiply and repopulate the earth. We'll see this new beginning. New beginning with a new set of rules. And yet, we see that there's a lot of similarity between Genesis 9 and Genesis 1. Here in 9 and in Genesis 1.28, God blesses the creatures and told them to be fruitful and to multiply. Here in 9 and in chapter 1, God prescribed the food that man could eat. There are differences which indicate the new beginning would be different from the old. Adam and his old generation seemed to have been vegetarians, but no one in his family now could eat meat. The only stipulation was, don't eat the meat with the blood in it. Because God values life, he ordained they take a priority over animal life. God says, I will demand an accounting from every animal. 
And this was an accepted view for many, many years until recently. Of course, today we'll find many that will argue that there's no difference, there's no difference in value between man and animals. And yet God's word is very clear that if an animal, even an animal, takes a person's life, that they're to be killed, or that God will deal with them. God is very clear that life is to be honored. The one who murders another person must pay that ultimate penalty of losing his own life. Verses 5 and 6 reads, Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. And one who murders shows contempt not just for that person that they kill, but also God. To kill another person usurps God's authority, his power, because God has power and authority over life and death. And when someone takes someone else's life, he's assuming the role of God in any society that begins to lose respect for life can't continue to prosper. The book of Genesis, especially here, stresses that life, the life of man is precious and belongs to God. But I think looking beyond the issue of murder, it's a reminder that suicide is prohibited. Life, again, belongs to God. Not only the life of animals, and of other beings, but our own, own life as well. We must realize that suicide is taking our life into the, our own hands when God says it belongs to Him. God values life. Do you and do I? We might quickly say yes, but do we value the lives of those maybe that aren't close to us? Do we value the life of those who are different? from us? Do we value the lives of those that may be socially different, economically different? God created each and every person who is on this universe, on this on earth, and we're to value them. He puts in place new rules for this new beginning. And with that, he makes a promise to Noah and to his son's family. A new age is dawned, and we shall see in the following verses one that has hope of a good future. We once again see God's wonderful grace. In verses 18, or 8 through 17, we see this new promise from God. God told Noah and his sons, verse 9 here, I hereby confirm my covenant with you and your descendants. And with all the animals that were on the boat with you, the birds and the livestock and all the wild animals and every living creature on earth, yes, I am confirming my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters kill all living creatures. Never again will a flood destroy the earth. So God's promise to Noah never to destroy the earth again by a flood. And God has kept his promise for over 4,000 years. John Piper stressed that the story of the flood isn't a children's story. He talks about how terrifying it must have been 
to be left on earth with the flood. He mentions Gustave Doré, a French artist who captures the mood outside of the ark. He has this wide expanse of, of a seas with high waves in the water, their bodies floating. And protruding from the, these waves is a rock. And we see three children slipping down. We see a mom and a dad trying desperately to push a fourth child onto this rock to save its life. But sitting on the rock is a tiger circling above a vultures. Can you imagine how desperate that must have been? I can't imagine the fears that these people went through. And, and, and it's true that Noah and his family didn't see that. They saw the results of it when they got off. They saw the complete destruction of everything. I wonder maybe if they had nightmares. I wonder if they had anxiety after the flood. Their whole world that they have known, ever known, was gone. Their friends, their extended family, their home, their community, everything. Everything and everyone is gone. And remember, as they think about this, they knew that the world was judged because of sin. They also, like you and I, know that we're desperately wicked and sin, except for God's grace. They must have been so aware of that. And they surely must have feared for another flood. I can remember so very clearly some, I don't know how many years ago, 15 or 20 years ago, we were headed to graduation for DeVita from CLA. And that day, it flooded. It rained hard for about eight hours. I remember so clearly coming back to a basement that we had just renovated to find two feet of water. That wasn't the end of that story. It continued on until a few years ago. Every now and then it would do that. And then two years ago, twice within two weeks, our basement flooded. Finally, we had check valves put in. We had major work done around the house, and we've had no problem since. But can I tell you the truth? Can I confess to you my anxiety at times? Chris and I can sit in a lion bed and it's pouring down flooding and we're both thinking, is it going to flood this time? Is the water coming back this time? See, we have those fears even though the work has been done. And God, God in His grace reached out to Noah and to his family to remove all those fears that they had of another major flood. The word covenant here is an important word in the Bible. 
God has made several covenants, different types of covenants from here. He made covenants with Noah, as you see here, but also with Abraham and with Moses. And um, the idea is always the same. A covenant is this guaranteed divine relationship. God pledges to do certain things in a well-defined way. The responsibility on his end is to f- fulfill them. It's always, a covenant is always between the great king and his servants. An unequal relationship. A creator, or the creator, and his creatures. But let's look at some of the features of this covenant with Noah. First, it was unilateral. God took the initiative. Noah didn't go and to God and began negotiating about this covenant. He didn't think about it. It was God who planned it. It's God who determines what he will do in accordance with his plan. And secondly, this covenant with Noah was eternal. The Lord promises never again to destroy the world through a flood. It doesn't mean that he won't judge us again, but he will not use a flood to destroy all of the earth. Third, it was universal. Even animals are involved in this. All mankind and all animals will never be destroyed again by a flood. That doesn't mean that there won't be local floods, but all animals and all mankind will be not be killed. Before, it was unconditional. God didn't tell Noah, now, I'm not going to send a flood. But if you guys began to sin like you were sinning before, I might send a flood then. He didn't say that. It was unconditional. He said, no matter what, my grace is upon you. And I'll never, ever judge you through a flood. On the other hand, I think of the Mosaic Covenant. It was conditional. It depended on the obedience of the nation of Israel, if you remember. If they obeyed, they were blessed. They stayed in the land. God blessed their crops. God blessed them. If they were disobedient, God warned them over and over, I'll remove you. And he did. But this covenant with Noah was not dependent on anything that Noah or any other person did as far as obedience. Simple grace. But God's covenant with Noah reveals, again, that grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor for those of us who don't deserve it. If mankind got what we deserved, we would have perished a long time ago. Do you ever think about what God thinks when he looks down on us? Do you ever, have you ever thought about that? Do you ever think about what he thinks about you? As I struggle sometimes with sin, and I wonder what he thinks. Sometimes when I watch the news or hear about things that are going on, you see the depravity of the earth. I'll ask whomever I'm with, whether it's at the house or in the office, I'll say, can you believe that? We shouldn't be surprised, should we, about the depravity of man. But God sees 
all, and yet he withholds his judgment. He's graciously offering us forgiveness to sinners. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. And though the day of judgment will come, now is the day of salvation. For those of us who have never put our faith in Christ and the work on the cross, now is a day of salvation. Well, after establishing this, he finally, and the fifth thing is that he establishes a sign, the rainbow. We all love to see the rainbow in the sky. And God says, I'm giving you a sign of my covenant with you for all generations to come. I've placed my rainbow in the clouds. It's a sign of my covenant with you. Never again will floodwaters destroy all of earth. Well, after establishing this covenant, promising not to judge the world through that rain or through the, the floods, we see the history of Noah and his family move from the rainbows to the shadows, from joy to sadness to sin. We learn, so to speak, is Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. One writer says that the problem with biographers is they never quite know enough. The problem with autobiographers is they know too much. When God writes the story, he knows everything. And he tells the truth. He never covers up the sins of his saints. Verses 18 through 29, we see that the sons of Noah who came out of the boat with their father were Shem and Ham and Japheth. Ham is the father of Canaan. And from these three sons of Noah came all the people who now populate the earth. And after the flood, Noah planted a vineyard. And when he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. The word says that Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders, and then they walked backwards and covered their father's naked body so they wouldn't see him. Their faces were turned the other way so they would not see the father's nakedness. When Noah woke up from his stupor, he learned what Ham had done. And he says, may Canaan be cursed. Now Ham was the one who showed disrespect and went in on his father. But Noah says, may Canaan be cursed. May he be the lowest of servants to his relatives. And Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed. And may Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. 
if we're honest, I think we've all been troubled at Noah's disgraceful condition. Before the fall, he was the most righteous of all. He was called a blameless man. We see again the downward spiral of man's heart as Ham sins against his father. As you look at the commentaries, you see just a abundance of theories of what actually happened. I think that we should not assume any misconduct on the part of Noah, other than the fact that he got drunk and was naked afterwards. Moses was careful to report this incident with a minimum of details. I think that the reality was that if it were more told about it, the sin would continue. Can you imagine Hollywood getting the details of this type of sin? There was something else. Going inside the tent with all the details in Technicolor. Moses leaves us outside with Japheth and Shem. Ham did nothing to preserve the dignity of his father. He didn't cover him. Instead, he went outside and seemingly tried to get his brothers to go inside and look. Finding out what happened afterwards, Noah said, May Canaan be cursed. But who is Canaan? We know that Canaan is the fourth son of Ham. Was it right to curse someone for the actions of another, for his father? We know from Scripture that sins of the fathers are passed on down to the children. A later generation may be judged for the sin of an ancestor if they are like-minded and do the same deeds. I believe as I studied that the Canaanite people themselves and not the man Canaan are in view as being the fulfillment of this prophecy. You see, the names Canaan and Shem and Japheth represent the people who followed after them. They represent the, the, their descendants who retained their traits. And by this extension, Noah's word predicting and prophesying the curse of the Canaanites is much wider than on the sun being cursed. The Canaanites, if you remember, were the embodiment of sexual immorality. And if you remember, from the moment that Israel enters into the Promised Land, the Canaanites are a corrupting force. Leviticus 18, God warns Israel about the Canaanite ways and gives a long list of vile practices of the Canaanites. The word nakedness is used 24 times. 24 times. The constant references to nakedness and to uncovering in this passage show that the Canaanites were people that were enslaved sexually. It helps us to see and understand what's going on. The attitude of, that led to Ham's actions came to fruition in the Canaanite people. They weren't cursed because of what Ham did. They were cursed because they acted like him. They were cursed because they acted like him. They totally abandoned themselves 
morally. And God says in his word that he visits the sins of fathers on the children up to the third and fourth generation. And we see this in Abraham's life, if you think about it. You remember Abraham lied about his wife, Sarah, saying that she was his sister, a half-truth. In turn, Abraham and Sarah's son, Isaac, came under the same circumstances. And what did, what did Isaac do? He lied about his wife, Rebekah. Well, their son ended up, Jacob, having been a liar, he's known as a deceiver, and he had 12 sons, 12 children, 12 sons, and 10 deceived and lied to him. So you see, four generations, four generations, and each one, you see that sin of lying and deception. We see Shem and Jacob's descendants were blessed because of their actions. Noah said, May the Lord, the God of Shem, be blessed. May Canaan be his servant. May God expand the territory of Japheth. And may Japheth share the prosperity of Shem. May Canaan be his servant. The Canaanites were doomed for perpetual slavery because of their moral abandonment just as they followed their distant ancestor, Ham. And their slavery here is contrasted with the blessings of Shem and Japheth and their descendants. Shem, it says, would have the spiritual blessing of knowing because he knew God. And Japheth would have that temporal blessing with the prospect and the possibility of participation with Shem. As we think about the descendants, I want to, to clarify some things. In addition to the Canaanites, Ham's descendants include some of Israel's most bitter enemies. Egypt, the Philistines, Assyria, Babylon. And contrary to something I don't hear very often, but I want to repeat it just to make sure that we understand the black race did not descend from Canaan. It's been proved over and over, and I, I think that has pretty much died, but I want to clarify and make that very clear. Japheth's descendants included Greeks and Romans, and Shem's descendants, of course, were the Jewish people. When this process, we see God sovereignly preparing the way for Abraham, the heir of Shem's blessings. The godly line is preserved through Shem. The blessings come not from Shem, but through Shem because of his walk with God. The blessings flow out of that relationship that he had with Yahweh. Genesis 12, 3 says, I will bless you, talking about Abraham and his descendants, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And and I will curse, and in all and you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and you and all your descendants will be blessed. And those 
Those who bless you, I'll bless. And those who curse you, I'll curse. God always blesses those who are righteous. And those who are living in the darkness without respect for God's word or for their family will be enslaved and already are enslaved unless they repent. But there's always now to repent. I think as we read the story of Noah, this man who was the most righteous man before the flood, this man who was blameless, I think sometimes that we're shocked when we see someone who's a good man, a godly man, a godly woman, and we hear that they fell. I think that most of us would say, boy, there, for the grace of God, goes me. There, for the grace of God, would be me. I think that we want to, to believe that if we have walked with God all these years, we build up immunity to sin. And I wish that if we could walk with God for such a long time that they would come when temptation would just kind of glance off us. But it doesn't happen, does it? It doesn't happen. It just ain't so. After walking closely with God for years, George Mueller, a very godly man, used to pray, Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. This is George Mueller, the man whom most of us have read some of his biographies and some of his stories. A very godly man. And yet, at the end of his life, he was praying, Lord, don't let me become a wicked old man. See, there's not one of us here today. I don't care how long we've been Christians. I don't care how long we've walked with God that doesn't face a constant struggle with sin. We'd never become invulnerable. Never. Never. Noah's sin, I think, teaches us that we're most vulnerable when the pressure is off. Think about Noah and his life. Here's a man who lived in a desperately wicked land before the flood. They made fun of him as he built the ark. And all around him was evil. And in the midst of that stress and pressure, Noah walked with God. He was righteous. He was blameless. That doesn't mean that he was not, that he was without sin, but he was a righteous man. But after the flood, when only his family was around, he kind of loosened up a little bit. And he gave in. He fell to sin. You see, when the pressure's off, our guards come down. It takes for me and for you a constant vigilance. To overcome sin. Remember the verse I mentioned up front the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great, and that every intention of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. 6 8, we saw that it says that, but Noah, 
But Noah found grace. All around us, there's wickedness. But God's grace is available for you and for me. Though we're prone to sin, we can choose to obey the Lord and to experience His blessing. I couldn't help but go, as I went through this, to think, do I want the blessings of God in my life? Do I want the blessings of God in my sons, Zachary and Jared, their lives? Do I want God's blessing on my grandchildren, if they have children, and great-grandchildren? It's something that each of us need to ask ourselves. Do we want God's blessing? We're prone to sin. The way we experience God's blessing is through obedience to Him. Recognizing that should drive us to the Lord. And if we know Christ personally, we have His Holy Spirit who lives within us. He enables us to obey. We don't have to sin. We don't have to sin. Noah's sin reminds us that anyone can stumble. Anyone. But it also illustrates that when we fall, we usually take someone down with us. Remember those three-legged races we used to do at the picnics? Your partner falls with you. There's no such thing as sinning alone. No one lives to himself or herself. No one dies to himself. No one sins unto herself. Today, as we live in a world that's filled with evil and desperately wicked people, we need to remember the long-term consequences of sin. Satan lies to me and he lies to you. And sometimes we believe his lies. But it's God's grace, God's grace in the midst of the battle. And as we've seen over and over, man's heart tends toward evil, but over and over we've seen God's grace. And he calls us today to walk with him, to live in his grace, because we have the Spirit of God living in us. Let's pray.